0: The Agora Podcast is covered by a BIPCOT no-gov license. Use and reuse is free and encouraged by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at BIPCOT.org.
1: A time
2: when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, by all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop.
0: You were born
3: free, you got fucked out of half of it, and you wave a flag The
2: <laughs> Central authority has just embedded right in it Uh, its own problem, and that is that it means a few people make decisions for many people.
0: When we're back. Welcome back to the Agora Podcast. It's your home for algorithm, localism, radical decentralization, and anti-authoritarian concepts. I'm Penguin. I'm here with my co-host Zach McGora, as always. We're um, just having enjoying a nice, um, slow, and relaxing Saturday. Zach, how's it going?
3: It's going. It's that time of the year again, man. You know how it is. I've been running myself ragged, so I'm, I'm doing. Uh, I'm pretty tired.
0: I need a little bit of rest, so yeah super busy over here too yeah
3: well uh today we got a a special guest and i'll tell you a a little backstory when we first started this podcast about what has it been two years penguin uh yeah about that penguin and and i had a conversation about some of the guests that we'd really love to have and um today we've got one of those guests uh we got sheldon richmond and I think our audience should know who or should be familiar with Sh- uh, Sheldon. But if, if you're not, he, Sheldon is executive director of the Libertarian Institute. I mean, he's a writer. He's, he's got a bunch of books and a ton of articles. Uh, he was uh, a- editor of the Freeman for a long time. Uh, he was a writer at C4SS. Um, it. He's just—he's been uh, in our circles and, and been putting out uh, great writing for a, a number of years, uh, all of which that I've enjoyed. So, if you're not familiar with Sheldon, uh, you should go check out his work. And uh, Sheldon Richmond, welcome to the uh, Gore of the podcast. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing fine, thank you for that introduction. By the way, I just want a minor correction. I'm executive editor of the Libertarian Institute.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. Executive editor. That's,
2: that's right. That's right. Now I'm doing great.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, how are you liking it over there? You've been there since the beginning, so.
2: Uh, yes, I, I am. I'm one of the founders with Scott and the late uh, uh, Norman Grigg, and uh, or Will Grigg. and uh, and uh, yeah, well, it's exciting things going on. All kinds of new people have uh, have been brought on board, and uh, if you check out the website every day, you'll see some great stuff, uh, original and and some of the best reposts as well.
3: Yeah, I've been seeing a lot more uh, uh new writing over there and that's that's good. I'm I'm enjoying it. Um so yeah, as I said in the intro, uh you are are probably um one of the libertarians that we uh draw from the most. There's a, you know, small handful that I would put on that list and in terms of uh, you know, sort of contemporary thinker, thinkers, uh you're you're right up there as one of our favorites. Um that's actually- no you're you're welcome uh, happy to have you on and um i uh gary chartier would be another we had him on uh, uh i don't know six months ago he, he'd be up on that list and he sang your praises when he was on i believe so um so let's, what's that i'm
2: sorry he's a good friend of mine oh i
3: know it. yeah yeah so let's uh before we get into sort of you know uh thoughts and ideals um can we can we do a little backstory on you? Like, uh, What was your journey to where you are today? What was that like? Uh, well,
2: I've been around a while, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I be started thinking libertarian thoughts and beginning to read stuff in, in the very late 60s. Uh, started college in Philadelphia, where I'm from, Temple University, in 1967, and was involved in, in, the, uh, in the local – first was a YAF chapter, but then, then the libertarians broke away from YAF and it became the Society of Individual Liberty. We were a chapter of that. Uh, and uh, so I've been reading and writing and you know being an activist for a while. After college though, uh, I went into the newspaper business. So I spent about oh, seven years as a reporter in Pennsylvania, in Wilmington, Delaware. But then from there moved, uh, moved to the movement professionally or when I got my first job, which was uh, uh, it was with the council, a group that doesn't exist anymore, the Council for a Competitive Economy. In uh, about 1979, we moved down to D.C., and uh, and, and we started, uh, we wanted to be a a really free market version of, of, say, Chamber of Commerce. We wanted to oppose the things that businessmen usually uh, want. So the fir- our first big fight, which we didn't win, by the way, was the bailout of Chrysler under the uh, Carter administration when the head of Chrysler, Lee Iacocca, was looking for uh, help because he got into trouble uh, financially. The company did, and we put placed ads, and we agitated. We probably testified, wrote all kinds of articles, and so that was that was the beginning of it. From there, I was I've been with a few different organizations. I was the editor of the Freeman for 15 years. That was the longest single job I held, and that was from the late 90s, you know, into uh, I don't know 2012 or 13, somewhere in there. Worked for the Cato Institute before that. Worked for the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, Citizens for a Sound Economy. All of these w- were, uh, to some extent, you know, libertarian organizations that addressed mostly economic stuff. With Cato, of course, it was a whole range of of topics, and uh, and the Freeman was a pretty good range of topics as well.
1: Hey, y'all! It's Resonance. Um, yeah, from the Let's Make Some Shit podcast. Uh, here telling you guys about some of the new stuff I've got at Appalachian Apothecary. Right now I have a remineralizing tooth powder that's made with calcium carbonate and bentonite clay. Um, I have a four ounce jars that I'm selling for 10 bucks a piece. And then uh, also I've done a couple of body butters. Um, they're whipped tallow, body butters, one's infused with arnica, and the other one is a very potent pain reliever, and if you'd like more info on that, you can find me at Radical underscore Resonance on Telegram, or at Mother of Chaos, X-A-O-S, on Twitter. Um, I'd be happy to make tinctures for you regarding like any medical condition that you have, so please reach out to me, and let's see if we can get you some herbal remedies.
2: So,
3: previous um, to libertarian politics, where where did you um, sit politically, or did you did you have a political home before that?
2: Well, sort of, but Chris, uh, I, I, my, I guess my awakening politically was the Goldwater campaign, which is mm-hmm. true of a lot of people my age, a lot of libertarians my age. I had an older brother who was a, 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 in favor of Goldwater; he was a couple of years older than me, and so I was learning about it from him. Uh, my parents were sort of mildly conservative Republicans, but unusual for the neighborhood I was in, which was mostly Democrats. Uh, So I, you know, just by osmosis, sort of leaned that way, but I was interested in Goldwater talking about individual liberty, which he did a lot. And, and and so that always attracted me. I liked stories as a kid that involved, uh, that uh, involved the American revolution and, uh, and what I saw as a battle for individual liberty. So I, I always leaned that way. So yeah, I was drawn, you know, when you're you're young and you don't see the big picture, it looked like the Democrats and Republicans, I was leaning toward the people that were talking about free enterprise because I was kind of unsophisticated at that point. And with Goldwater, I hadn't been thinking about foreign policy yet. He was quite hawkish. Uh, I wouldn't have if I knew if I knew then what I know now, I, I it would have been hard time being for Goldwater, but at least on domestic the, the domestic side he did talk about the need to limit government and that sounded that sounded good to me at that stage. So that's that's the direction I came from.
3: It's amazing to me how many folks, um, let's say from your generation, you're, you're a tad older than we are, uh, can't you know came out of go- the Goldwater campaign or movement. Um, and and that's surprising in and of itself, but it also amazes me how many different directions those people took. So you look at people like uh, yourself and Carl Hess and. I believe even uh, I can't remember. Is it Chardier or Chardier? He told me, and I forgot. Chardier, yeah. Chardier. yeah, yep. And um, he, he, I believe he said uh, similar things. At least his folks were uh, Goldwater uh, Republicans, I believe. But you know, you, so you but you are, uh, I would say, all uh, very distinct for, or different from Goldwater in a lot of lot of different oh, yeah. ways. You yeah. you sort of took a what you might call a left libertarian uh, path. Um, as opposed to some other Goldwater. But it still all comes back to Goldwater for a lot of people. In a- yeah,
2: and like you, you mentioned Hess, when Hess worked as a, as a speechwriter for Goldwater, he was still a conservative. He wrote a book right after that campaign called In a Cause That Will Triumph. And it was about how uh, even though Goldwater lost, the future is with what Goldwater was talking about. Now, Hess changed quite a bit in the next few years. Uh, he was, you know, he was an editor even at Newsweek, so he was still kind of establishment. But and I got to know Hess later, a little bit later on, uh, when he got involved in the Libertarian Party. But I, I think I met him before that. And of course, he, you know, after a while was uh, had become a welder and was was wearing, uh, you know, overalls, and uh, he wasn't dressing like a a Main Street Republican uh, at all. And I learned a lot from him. I mean, back when he and Murray Rothbard were associated. Uh, I was following them closely. I, I had met them both. It was at several events that they both appeared at, and uh, you could say I'd, you know I, I was influenced by Hess certainly Rothbard too. But and I could name others. But but Hess was one of those early people, and he was anti-war. This is where I started hearing the 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 idea that you can't. I mean, I was still believed in government back then. But uh, you can't. How do you limit government if you're policing the world, going to war everywhere? Can't do it.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah we I'm are, partially the through
0: for the state, as they say. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm partially through that um uh Carl has this biography so far. So I'm around that point. Um it, it's really making me think like um this is probably a much bigger version. So instead of trying to compare it one way, probably to compare it the opposite that uh a recent example of something probably a much smaller, less significant, or maybe not example, I guess we will, we have yet to see is the, uh, Ron Paul, uh, Ron Paul movement that, that, you know, spike, I guess in two presidential campaigns where, um, there was a kind of coalescing and some sort of a movement ar- around, uh, uh, Dr. Paul, um, for whatever yeah. you think of him, uh, you know, where people have gone from that, where, where people did come together from all sorts of different dissident parts of, of, you know, uh, uh, political and and not, not so political uh, life, and then where people have kind of branched off from that um, into various different directions and and maybe multiple branches off from those, but it's it's so diverse how far people have come from that, but how that was kind of a pivotal moment that may not have actually had a lasting like material influence on exactly people's ideas, but that is just a springboard to a lot of the, a lot of the places we are now and the people that. Are now in their thirties and forties, and and so forth, going on into um, different political movements, and how much they might have been part of that Ron Paul movement in two thousand eight yep. and
2: twenty twelve. Right, and Ron Paul, of course, was heavily influenced by Murray Rothbard and uh, uh, w- who helped set up the Mises Institute. So uh, you know, you can see how the chain, you know, one link connects to the ne- next link. One person influences the next person. or... Hopefully, more than one person, but it gets passed along, and uh, and Ron, Ron Paul's you know message about the Federal Reserve you know comes out of right out of Murray, who spent so much time writing and speaking about money. You know what government has done to our money. You know, on, on several occasions, he published things about uh, why it's just wrong for government to be involved in money. Uh, you can't tell where someone will come out of. Uh, you talked about different directions people went. I mean, I remember hearing stories about people who read the fountainhead, and joined the, the the new left back back in the 60s. So, you know, you never can be sure what a person's going to conclude from something.
3: Hey, y'all, I got something cool to tell you about. So you know how uh, I'm doing a big initiative to try to get more people to Gorilla Garden? Well, uh, Daggerist over at agoristacres.com He's kind of teaming up with me a little bit here to help support this uh, cause. So if you use the code AGORA10 uh, over at agoristacres.com, you'll get 10% off um, for any reason um, you're buying seeds, whether that be guerrilla gardening or your own garden, anything like that. But if you contact Dagorist or myself and you tell them that, I sent you to get seeds for guerrilla gardening. He might be able to swing an additional hookup. Um, it might be just whatever he's got, uh, you know, a uh, surplus of or that kind of thing, whatever he can do. Um, so he's he's down for the cause here and really wants to help uh, see this come to fruition. Um, so I'm, I am Sekmagora, at Sekmagora, on all the, the uh, social media you can contact daggerus directly on his website uh, agorastakers dot com again, and uh, the code is Agora ten to just get ten percent uh, off straight up, and um, tell him I sent you for for gorilla gardening, and he'll uh, he'll he'll try to hook you up however he can, and um, what, this is what we got to do. We got to support people that support us that want to see more of this in the world. Um, so. Again, it's agoristacres.com. Check it out um, and get out there and, and, and cause a cause a ruckus and get some grill gardening done. All right, y'all. Peace. So uh, not too long ago, I was listening to you on um, Roderick Long's uh, podcast, The Agoric Cafe. Um, yeah. I don't know if he's still doing that or not. but
2: I haven't seen one in a while. I guess he's been busy.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, he is a busy man. But um, I really enjoyed that, that uh, interview. Uh, It was very informative, but it was Mm -hmm. also felt like just two old friends having a a casual conversation, which I really enjoyed. And you mentioned that uh, how much, you know, uh, um, long was a, um, an influence on, on you and, and sort of moving to, uh, you know, what the, what you might call the libertarian left. And um, I guess, do you think we're seeing a, re- a resurgence of that uh, milieu or ethos now? Like, where do you think the state of things uh, are in, in terms of the, let's say, the movement of the libertarian left?
2: That's uh, that maybe the hardest question you could have possibly asked.
3: <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. The, things there might not much, be a right <laughs> answer here either. So
2: things are such a mess right now that I'm even reluctant to use the word libertarian left because I don't think it communicates. Yes. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I defended that, I term, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years I ago. But I, I just don't think it would it gets across because there's so much, you know, look at the left these days. There are a couple of strands. Uh, you know, you have the you have the, what's called the woke left, the identity politics, which uh, I have severe problems with. But then you also have the opponents on the left of this of the identity politics. People are the are the uh, class they want they want a class uh, politics rather than an identity politics but their class politics is is not very good either it's not informed by the old radical classical liberal uh, uh, division of, uh, w- of what happens when the state uh, intervenes and taxes and subsidizes uh, favorite groups uh, they have a completely different they have a more of a, much more of a Marxian notion right that that even someone who sets up a business and hires a some people to work for him. That person's an exploiter, which I think is nonsense. So I don't know where things stand really. I know where I stand. I mean, my views have not changed. But the, I'm, a, I'm a little bit careful about the labels because I don't wanna be seen on the right because I don't believe I'm on the right. But there are some people on the right who agree with a lot of positions I take. In fact, they've even gotten more and more anti-war and more and more anti-surveillance state and an intelligence community. Uh, while well, people on the left at least some people on the left are you know pro or pro intelligence community pro surveillance so it's very confusing at the moment i guess i could
0: just- agree more of what you're saying about that that's exactly kind of what i've been going through over the past few years not having been in these spaces for very long but in over the past couple of years specifically um originally coming to this like when we started the podcast really having this idea of the movement of the libertarian left and kind of the ideas because we are to some extent and i just want to see what you think about this we're to some extent reacting to to a you know conservative right-wing libertarian fusion that had existed yeah. and in people's minds and in in and, and this is very true like in everyday people's minds that that libertarianism is very Conservative-aligned, very right-wing phenomenon uh, in political movement, Um, and how they describe how the average person describes libertarianism is probably pretty off from how you know we probably would. But at at the same time, I don't think it very accurately at all captures a like you mentioned any alliance with the existing left-wing groups and left-wing ideology, and even historical left-wing ideology were really pretty. I've really come to over the past year an idea, and I've always been saying this, but now I really mean it like from the heart, like it it, it truly is so far from both a right, somewhere on a right wing and left wing spectrum that we say things that might seem very far in one direction or another. Something that might sound very right wing, but truly our, our fundamental attitudes and goals is like as market oriented you know, radical libertarians are are, are fundamental goals and worldview and and the world that we desire is much different than anything that you could place as a kind of a a right wing objective, so to say, or a left wing. I I really think that I just, the idea that is so far from either of those ends of that spectrum has been just been reinforced by kind of what I've where I've seen politics go, and I have seen no politics obviously move any closer to what we would find desirable. So, I, I, would you agree with that? That it re, it really is the cliche no. of neither left nor right.
2: I, th- I think so. Uh, look, I, there are different strands of the right, some better than others. What what unites them is they don't like the left. What they understand as the left. That's why they're on. They're hanging together. Some of them are more free market and a little more, uh, they're becoming more anti-war. They're understanding the dangers of that. Uh, on the other hand, you have the populist right who, uh, who are now doubtful about war. But they want, that one reason is because they want the money spent by the government on what they would say is, you know, America. They said like America first. They don't want to leave it in the pockets of the taxpayers. They, they They just don't want it spent on Ukraine or somewhere in the Middle East or China or russia uh, they want it spent on uh you know rehabilitating uh, uh factories in the Midwest even though robots are doing the work now and uh, or rebuilding uh roads or something like that i mean that's sort of what trump says trump Trump doesn't say i want to cut the Pentagon budget first of all I don't think you want to cut the pentagon budget but if he did, he wouldn't say it's in order to give the money, let the taxpayers keep the money. It's that he has other uses for it at home. You know, you hear people say, why are we protecting Iraq's border, but we're not protecting our border? You hear the right the right wing say things like that. Yeah. So uh, I part ways with those people. There could be individuals who are much more free market oriented who call themselves on the right that I have more agreement with. But those people would then tend to be hawkish. It's, you know, it's a pack, It's the old package deal. People think, you know, Mm -hmm. a bunch of disparate positions somehow go together and you got to accept them all. And uh, my test is what what limits the state, if not gets rid of it, at least limits it, rolls back the power and leaves the power in the hands of individuals and their and their private associations and efforts to uh, cooperate with each other. That's the test for me. And the the left and the right, for the most part, don't seem to uh, agree with that. They, they have their own agendas. The left has its agenda.
3: So something I've been saying for at least for the well, for a while now, but at least more strongly than in the past few years, is that I don't think the terms left and right are useful for radical anti-state politics. Because once you get to the point of anarchism, now you're just talking about personal lifestyle choices you know so is that really a like right-wing ideological thing i, I don't think so i don't think it really applies anymore it's just uh it, you know it's cooperation and free association right
2: mm-hmm.
3: so i don't i don't i think these might have uh these terms might not be useful to us very much anymore and they might go into the category of what um some other terms might be called as as anti-concepts i think they obscure more than they actually illuminate um i think it's much better to say uh you know what we're for rather than to try to um pigeonhole ourselves into uh these sort of um left and right categories and you know a lot of folks will say well it's easier to reach to the left and or or vice versa it's easier to outreach to the right for whatever reason and i don't think either of those are true I, i think you can find individuals on both uh quote-unquote sides, that uh, you might uh, find common ground with and be able to, you know, convince of of these ideas that we hold. And um, I don't think it's uh, one side or the other is the natural ally, ally in a sense. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on those?
2: I, I agree with that because, you know, I, I tried making some overtures, and, I'll, you know, maybe they don't read my stuff. I, can't, I, I, I did what I could, but... Uh, I tried making overtures to sort of left uh, left types, uh, and I don't know. I haven't noticed any any great uh, inflow from the left. There are a bunch of sort of homeless left people who are fed up with identity politics and and woke and all that stuff, but they they're uneasy to the extent I hear them making comments on uh, say YouTube shows. They're uneasy about libertarians. They either think libertarians are crazy, or they, you know, well, my gosh, you, you mean an unregulated economy? Nobody's in favor of that. Uh, so while they may agree with us on some of our criticism of the, of what's now the, sort of the crazy left, you know, with critical race theory and uh, gender politics and all that stuff, uh, they're they're uneasy with us too because they think. You know, where do you guys come from? You're still supporting free markets? Uh, you know, I don't even, they don't even know what that is. I mean, so, and, and uh, I don't see us winning over people from the right either. Maybe I'm missing it, but it's not come to my attention. So I think we just need to be as clear as we can about what we're in favor of and give the best arguments we can for it, use historical examples when we, when we have them, and, um, and just hope for the best. But it, I'm not very optimistic right now. Uh, it sounds like you're not either uh, right now. I don't see a lot of people buying or you know trying to buy what, what, we're, what we're selling right now. I'm over
3: mis- uh, pessimistic in the short term, optimistic in the long term.
2: Yeah, that's what uh, Mary Rothbard always used to say, right? He's a long term right. optimist and a short term pessimist.
3: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, let's touch on the woke thing a little bit. Um, because sure. I and listen, maybe I've been reading too much C4SS, okay? But, um, I wouldn't just myself as woke, but I will say that <clears throat> um, free markets and anarchism is the best course of action to um, uplift any sort of marginal and uplift and liberate any sort of, you know, what you might call marginalized groups currently. And I think the, a- any oppression that you're looking at and these groups ultimately stems from the, the state and big business. So um, yeah. it's, it almost seems to me that um, I don't know all, all this woke stuff could be solved very easily by abolishing the state and and sort of uh, uh, crony protectionism. Uh, hmm. I mean, what what do you think about about that? Are, are we the answer?
2: Sure. To I the agree woke with problem? you. But that's a language that nobody, hardly anyone else understands. Abolish the state and let people handle this through property, contract, and cooperation, which is the answer I give. So they they don't like. Property really, um, and they may not be for abolishing it altogether, but they certainly don't want people just to be able to do whatever they want with the property, even if it's not harmful to anybody. Uh, I just don't think they speak those that language. It's like you're speaking ancient Greece to a Greek to them, and they don't uh, they don't really know what they're saying. You're saying that their their idea is to reach for the state, whether it's race, whether it's uh, gender, whether it's uh, you know any of these things. That's what the state's there for, as they see it. And, uh, of course, yeah. the, right, uh, the right now, especially these national conservatives and the ones that want to have, uh, you know, laws against uh, pornography or the you know, various kinds of things, uh, you know, the old the old is really an old conservative position. Uh, they're reaching for the state too now. They, they're, they've stopped really defending for the kind of – the strand of the right that I'm thinking of now has dro- dropped even lip service. In fact, they say, the nationalists say uh, – the, the, lib, the liberal meaning the classical liberal pro- project has failed it, it was powerless to to uh, keep us from getting into the mess we're in today so what do we need it for that's what they're saying so left i don't see friends on the left and right for the most part of course they're like you say there are exceptions or individuals but i mean uh, as far as uh, movements go i don't i don't see them yeah. maybe i'm overlooking right. them i would be happy yeah. to have, have someone bring them to my attention
3: no i generally agree and i, I think the best we can hope for is finding those um those you know, those weirdos, those outliers, and and individuals that would be um, receptive to our ideas, or we can at least get along with. I th- I think, and I, honestly, that's what this pro with the project we're we're doing is just trying to find any kind of coalition to um, those of us that would uh, actually like to uh, further these ideas. You know, um, and find who we can and friends along the way, but. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah so you I, mentioned I, um the woke left i just want to yeah interject um you mentioned the woke left and that whole thing. i mean that's i almost hate using that kind of term it just comes from sensationalist media but you, i i've increasingly come very harshly against that sort of thing in, in a way that i really refuse to kind of jump into that fray before and i do think it's truly very harmful and and and, and silly and just i think there is a difference and i i don't like when libertarians try to kind of adopt um, leftist language to appeal to these kind of ideas, because sure, you you may be, you may you may ha- not have any kind of animosity or, or bigotry, or want to kind of make a stand against bigotry or discrimination or whatever. However, you feel, but it it, it really isn't. I think it's very harmful to uh, adopt the leftist framework, that kind of Marxist, you know, oppressed class framework or just broader leftist idea of there are op- oppressed people and oppressors um and i mean that comes out of classical liberalism to an extent but trying to uphold the um the oppressed the oppressed working class against the you know the the, the artisan ownership class mm-hmm. the um the uh, uh gay lesbian transgender cisgender and and the ra- the racial hierarchies and everything the, the idea that you know we almost need to boost it and and race up and and just outright fund you know minority groups against majority groups just out, out of out of sheer morality in in the same way that you mentioned um free association and private property that, that there's almost uh, from, from the left, a uh, moral compunction against these things, that these things mm-hmm. are inherently harmful. And, and it's a, it's a moral quest to kind of limit or abolish these things. And I, I think, I think that e- sometimes that any kind of adoption of that framework, not to go and full anti-woke, it's always never to go to the polar opposite, but that framework is just irrelevant to us. That's, that's kind of how I, you know see it in a lot of these cases
2: no i agree with that you, you you i mean you shouldn't mimic either side in order to answer you know the the other side uh because that's confusing too we, we have our own distinctive view we don't want to turn to the state we want people to work things out again through free association uh, you know the whole range of cooperation including trade and sometimes in the in the uh, for, with formal contracts where where that is a good idea it depends on you know what the situation is who the people are involved and in. that's what we ought to be pushing and getting getting the state out how the state will mess things up whatever it does uh, so you know I always like the Ron Paul message that we ought to prioritize he wanted to really attack the war state first right the war and surveillance and then we'll we'll fight about the welfare state and the other stuff afterwards that does seem like a good, uh, a good thing, but you know it didn't really catch on. He he excited people during his campaigns, but of course he didn't get presidential nomination, and uh, and then it kind of faded away, and uh, and other people took you know took took his place. But uh, his place. But that at least was a good message. Can't we all you know all can't all the op- opponents of the established order at least agree on this? We gotta roll back the warfare state, end these wars, not get in new ones, stop the surveillance, and, you know, all, all, all the rest of that. But that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Anyway, you know, you, you have Congress, even the so-called squad, which are supposed to be these, you know, great radicals, voting to, re, you know, reauthorize surveillance and and uh, and send money, tons of money to Ukraine. Uh, you, you know, who can you count on? <laughs> so I think we're pretty much on our own. Maybe there can be individual coalitions here and there, on particular issues, but I don't, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Go,
0: go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Okay. Uh, the old trope of the uh, ra- the uh, radic- the anti-war radical left being dead. I-, I hate to say it, but they've they've really done a whole thing again with this whole um it's a lot of things, but a lot of it is the the woke politics, identity politics and everything. They really have roped so many people left of center into just not having any any place any place in their worldview any place in their ideology for for the anti-war view and and, and unfortunately that view is now skewing right which just further turns off people on the left yeah. to um, not not that people on the right shouldn't have sympathies that way because uh, it's if it's the right view of course but even further turns off people on the left and when it comes to you know we don't have a f- full-blown war that you know this this state is advocating actively participating in right now but when it comes to look at this whole ukraine mess i mean you, you it's very clear that you see a lot of misfits kind of raising up some some doubts but it's, it's very hard to see an anti-war you know coalition forming in the current political environment It's very, very pessimistic and i think even more pessimistic about about laissez-faire and free markets
2: oh uh, yeah i i agree with that i, I... I think you're absolutely right. I don't know. You know, the, the attempt at left and right begins began, you know, with the Vietnam War where Murray Rothbard and, uh, and a small circle around him was working fruit, fruitfully for a bit with new leftists, some major new leftists uh, because they had a common enemy there, namely the war in Vietnam and the, the U.S. Uh, unceasing efforts to do whatever it is they're doing, we're doing there. And, uh, and, you know, that worked for a bit, uh, but that didn't hold together. And then, uh, you know, and then Rothbard switched strategies when the when the Soviet Union closed shop. They got the idea that uh, Rothbard and the people he was close to got the idea that, well, we can we can rejoin with the conservatives now because the Cold War used to divide us. But now, you know, there's no more Soviet Union. So that's not in the way. So so therefore, they're, they're, they're for limited. They don't like them an unlimited central government and yeah, they tend to be more localists. So that, that's truly really some of them, some of the right. And so that's where you get Rothbard and, uh, and the people around him then turning to the what was known as the paleo strategy, to, uh, trying to appeal to paleo conservatives, paleo to distinguish them from the neoconservatives who were for all, you know, getting us all, all kinds of wars in the Middle East and, the, and other places. So things shift and they've shifted again. I don't know what Rothbard would be saying if he were alive today but uh, things have shifted a couple more times, you know, since he passed the scene in what, 95. And it's, it's really hard to sort things out. I mean, uh, I just call, you know, I just write my articles and call them as I see them. And, you know, if someone responds, great, but if if not, there's not much, all, much I can do about it.
3: <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I would, I think, Murray Rothbard would be saying much the same as we are now um you know kind of none of the above <laughs> find who you can and just stick with them and see what happens but
0: mm-hmm.
3: um no i just i was going to say earlier uh i saw an article a headline that AO, AOC is palling around and like doing a tour with like military recruiters and, uh, that's the yeah that's the squad for you so um so uh that um continuing on with other terms that maybe we should abolish um <laughs> that maybe what we might call anti concepts you've done several great talks on um and and Roderick Long has as well um on the terms uh capitalism and socialism uh, right. do you think we should we as anarchists should um you know discard these Terms and uh, and why?
2: Well, yeah, I've written about that. In fact, I wrote about it just a couple of weeks ago. Again, and quoting one of my articles from years ago, Uh, the problem is those terms. Everybody has their own definition. Almost. Uh, I mean, look, you got you got Bernie Sanders, who's what America's best known Democratic socialist. He was once asked at a CNN town hall, I believe. What? So, what do you mean by by that by socialism? And he said. I mean an economy that works for all of us. Well, that's not very specific. I'm, I'm, I want an economy that works for all of us. Laissez-faire works yeah. for all of us. Uh, freedom works for all of us. So that doesn't help. That's, that's his, you know, he's afraid to tell Amer- either that's his real definition or he's afraid to tell the people what he really means by that. Uh, a lot of people use the word socialism, and all they really mean is enhanced welfare state, which is, object. Well, you know, we ought to be objecting to that, but they don't mean ab- no, if you read the the Communist Manifesto, uh, pro- about abolition of private property sums up you know the whole thing. Once you get rid of private property, you don't have money, you don't have markets, and uh, and then you have you have collective or state ownership of of, of so-called means of production. So uh, that's what socialism once meant. They don't mean that now. Medicare for all is not socialism. You may call it socialistic, but they're not calling for the government to own all the hospitals and be the employer of all doctors and nurses. They mean they want the, they want the, uh, the government through the tax system to pay people's bills. Well, that's, that's just an enhanced welfare state. And again, I'm not accepting that, but it's not socialism. So you see how the word is used. Same with capitalism. And Roderick Long has a I quote in, in my article. Roderick Long uh, has a good discussion of this as well, where he says, but, you know, people never, most people don't use the word capitalism to mean purely the free market or purely the, uh, you know, neo-mercantilist, uh, highly interventionist, more or less pro-business intervention, you know, uh, government system we have today. Uh, they don't mean it purely one or the other. Their, their idea of capitalism is it's, it's the free market system that's in effect right now in, uh, you know, the United States and other Western countries. And that's a contradiction because what does exist in these countries are not the free market. But people think, no, capitalism means the free market that now exists in these countries. That's capitalism. So we have to untangle that for people. And so uh, the word, you know, lots of lots of libertarians have had misgivings about the word capitalism. Uh, uh, Hayek had uh, had misgivings about it. First of all, it's not understood. It, it, it highlights only one aspect of an economy, namely the capital, which may be very important. Money capital is very important to calculation, as Ludwig von Mises showed. It's, it's vital, um, but it's but it's only one other thing. It's only one thing. It sounds like privileging of, of owners of capital. We don't want to sound that way. That's cronyism. That's the we don't you know we don't want that. So. I avoid the word, I say free market or some alternative, but I just try to be clear. If you're arguing with a, someone who claims to be a socialist, it, it does no good. It's a waste of time to be saying, no, ca- here's what cap- the word capitalism really means. And then the, the other person could say, no, here's what the word socialism really means. Forget all that. What you are, What you need to argue is, are we living in a system where individuals are free politically, legally, economically to invest consume trade you know are th- are they free to do that stuff without interference by the state or not that's the question not not what we're going to call it and the same for the socialist tell me what you want if you're a social if you say you're a socialist tell me what you want don't don't throw a word around say what it is you want and then we can argue about that that's that's what I think you have to do these words you know are beyond hope right now unfortunately
0: yeah, I have a real um, shit list, so to speak, of words. And obviously it first starts with, um, a, as of um, Dr. Long said, um, capitalism being an anti-concept. And I think the next on the list, um, I guess the next one should be socialism and then liberal, conservative, pretty, pretty awful. And I, I can't, oh, and, and honestly, honestly, woke is pretty getting pretty um, up there, too, as well. Um, but when you when you look at the kind of the political currents that we have going on right now. Um, you mentioned free enterprise and the ability to, you know, to trade and make economic choices um, without interference and engage in kind of a, you know, engage in exchange and, and, and the free enterprise, not just exchange, but, you know, kind of you know, saving and, and investing your resources and making your own economic plans and owning your own tools and production or working with whoever you want. Um, depending on what's optimal for you, hmm. uh, in, in your preferences um and everything i guess just kind of restating that but it seems like the, the the issue is and this goes back to being optimistic and pessimistic is that like i mean this isn't surprising but like everyone every proposal every idea it, it, it that seems so ethereal um when, when it comes to like actual politics that that Everyone's trying to come up with the the economic plan of, of more centralization, more more government controls on trade, making a deal with China or, or ter- more tariffs um, and so forth. And it's, it's really we, we seem so far th- this far past, almost a 100 years past the 30s, when when they when they tried to bury a laissez-faire and declare it dead, which is basically, you know, free market, free enterprise um, free market and free enterprise since we don't say capitalism and I haven't for years. Um, so where do we go from, how do we make the case for a laissez-faire and free, mar- and free markets or freed markets uh, in an environment where we're, where generations past that even being seen as a viable option. And it seems like almost uh, going back in time and deconstructing uh, these large status structures that, um, mm-hmm have been kind of superimposed on our basic everyday economic activity. Uh, We we just seem so far past, like I said, the declaration that laissez-faire is dead.
2: Well, I think we need to start from the ground up. I like approaches that uh, various people have made. So Michael Humer, uh, the philosopher at uh, Colorado, uh, and he's not the first to do this, uh, starts by pointing out that if you were to do things that uh, the state does, or that lots of people want the state to do, it would be and Bastiat Actually, you know, Frederick Bastiat made this point in the 19th century, early 19th century. Uh, if you were to do things that the state does, you'd be seen as a criminal, right? If you if you went with a gun from door to door and said, "Give me uh, 10% of your uh, income. I want to give it to the poor," or name your name your cause, uh, everybody would realize you're a thief. An armed arm robber. Uh, so you can start that way, and then say, "Well, why why is the state different? And we can't vote that p- kind of power to the state because you have to have it yourself before you can vote it, you know, delegate it to a third party." So there's that. Uh, that's a good approach, and I uh, an approach that goes with it, or or you know, independently, uh, ought to be used is is a is, is Hayek's great point that the the uh, people at the center can never know enough. Uh, they don't have access to the information and much of which is never articulated. It's not in the form of data. You know, you can go to a database and get it because it's, it's in the minds and tastes and preferences of people. Um, often they don't know how they'll choose until they actually confront uh, an alternative. And a lot of times people, we, we face alternatives that we didn't even anticipate. And so we, we could never in advance even say what we would, do. What we would do if if if, uh, if that choice uh, was up to us. That's why central planners will always get it wrong, and they'll resort to force. I mean, how do you have a central plan and meanwhile have uh, consumer freedom? If you're able to change, uh, you know, as a consumer, if your tastes are going to change, which I know they do, and you're going to switch from buying, you know, X, Y, and Z to something else, how can there be a central plan if you're free to do that? So, what happens to freedom? I mean, I think pointing those two things out—the mar- this moral point about, uh, you know, if you did what the state did, you'd be in big trouble, and you should be. And most people, and everybody, would know that. No, you're you're wrong. That plus the idea that um, the central planners will always suffer from, you know, fatal uh, knowledge uh, uh, deficiencies—it can't possibly have—and that there's no substitution for the the trade and cooperation of countless individuals who know their own case better than anyone else. You know, Hayek talked about local knowledge, knowledge of time and place. There's no substitute for any of that. Those are two themes I think we really need to pound away on. There are others too, but those are two that come to mind.
3: So I'm going to try to respond without using the terms left and right, because I'm going to follow my own rules here, but Mm -hmm. there's a certain strand of, um, we'll say free marketeers that um, I find value in, in the sense that they apply that same knowledge problem to large firms, which is something that I think some other free marketeers uh, sort of lack or drop the ball on that point. Um, So, you know, uh, you know, people like uh, Chardier and Charles Johnson and also Kevin Carson, they, um, that they would say that the, Uh, the current state of big business is um, being protected from what they might call diseconomies of scale, which is kind of another way of saying uh, internal like knowledge problems or inefficiencies. And these things would, um, uh, these these large uh, corporate form or corporate firms would would not exist in a free market because of um, the same uh, cent- the problems with central planning that you just described. Do you do you have any uh, do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah,
2: well, of course, the the people you name and other other people that uh, have used the term left libertarian, including me, always point out that uh, th- this problem is only a problem that occurs where there is a co- the corporate state exists. And is giving shelter to companies. Uh, it was it was never it was never the position of the left libertarian that I know of, including myself, who said that that's a that's a free market problem. That's a problem because you don't have a free market. In a free market, if a company tried to do too much, and this even happens even today with all the intervention, and has happened over the last you know forty years, uh, if a company gets too big to where information problem puts it at a competitive disadvantage with, with rivals and they could be brand new rivals that just get into the market. They're going to learn real fast that they've uh, you know, that they're suffering a knowledge problem. They're going to get the feedback the, what the state does is, is it uh, uh, keeps them from getting the feedback because it, uh, first of all, it may exclude or, or impede competitors and it may subsidize outright subsidize the, uh, uh favored firm so it doesn't ever get the market feedback that it's grown grown too large so that's not a problem for markets uh so i agree with the, uh, the the people that have criticized that uh also make a good point i mean even today even big companies fortune 500 companies are not completely immune from market forces companies go out of business uh, fortune 500 companies uh uh, move in and out and out of that, the list of 400, you know, 500 companies over, over the years. Uh, Exxon a few years ago, well, maybe 40 years ago, decided they wanted to get into all kinds of things like, uh, like, um, uh, office furniture and stuff. And they realized that was a bad mistake. And within a year or two, they had like sold off those divisions. So it's, it's not completely immune. Uh, and i'm just saying that as a matter of fact and i don't i'm not favoring the intervention because they're not totally immune i want them to be more immune i want them to be uh, you know i don't want them to have shelter from market from uh, market forces the the market winds ought to blow and those companies uh, if they're not responsive will uh, get beaten by competitors so uh, economies of scale uh, is a good thing and the market is the is the thing that tells you if you if you, if it's become a dis economy because you're not going to last long.
3: Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And this kind of goes back to um, our our what we were just talking about with capitalism and socialism. And I and I just wanted to sort of add to this. Like previously in history, people that would have um, called themselves socialists are agreeing would have agreed very much with what we're saying now. In the sense that um, they wanted what they called socialism, which to them meant um, they no, no longer wanted society to be dominated by holders of capital, which they believed the state was, they were free marketeers. You know, we're talking about Thomas Hodgkins and um, uh, William B. Green and Benjamin Tucker and, and oh. even, even Perdon. And, um, you know, their answer, their way that they, wa- they wanted to achieve, achieve what they saw as, uh, saw as socialism was um, to was to move the state and allow the market to flourish, which they thought would, um, you know, through things like diseconomies of scale would lessen the power of the holders of capital and uh, which they saw being as being propped up by the state, which in many cases they are. And would get, give more purchasing power to labor, right? So, if you can imagine a a, a, a market where it's very there's very low bar- barriers, there's no artificial barriers to entry. It's very easy to start your own business, be an entrepreneur, etc. Um, you you would uh, think if uh, workers had met much more, it was much easier for a worker to just say, "No, I'm going to go start my own business." They would have much more leverage to be compensated for their labor because more people would be self-employed or start a business or, or what have you just because it's easier to do so. And uh, even people that worked for a wage would always have that as an option, as an exit strategy. It would be much easier for you to say, no, this isn't working for me anymore. I'm going to go work for myself. And therefore, they just have much more labor- leverage in terms of uh, labor compensation. So these people in history would have called themselves um, socialist. Um, you know, ben, ben Tucker to his dying day called himself a socialist, and you know he chat
2: Not to a dying day; he did for a long time. But I would say long time. He gave up yeah. the word, yeah, like kind of later in life.
3: Yeah, so and he-, he did speak out against communists and state socialist, even even while calling himself a socialist. Um, and then, uh, just to speak to capitalism, real quick. Mm-hmm. So in the, and i've said this before and my our listeners are, have heard this before but you know if you go back to the history of the birth of capitalism or what we call capitalism coming out of feudalism in the late 1600s it was very much sort of a, a collusion between uh this the politicians of the day and what you might call the merchant class or the moneyed elite against the old aristocracy so they were sort of over using politicians and armies and there was collusions amongst the, the what you we would call now big business or the banking elite, et cetera, um, to to sort of uh, erode the power of the the dying old old aristocracy. And to me, this is this is what um, changed my thoughts about the term capitalism is at what point did that ever change? It's just been the same since that time up until today. Right. Be- and yes, it's because of the state. It's not because of the market. But that's how this system has worked since that coin, that term was coined to describe this economic paradigm. Um, do you do you disagree with anything I just well, said?
2: I, I think that maybe that's a little oversimplified because there's there's I mean as an analogy, let's remember, let's think of uh, the year 1215 where the the barons forced King John to sign the Magna Carta.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now those rights only applied to a very special class of of individuals in England right the barons but that's set in motion no by, not not by I'm not saying by in, the barons intention but it's hard to contain that and people started getting ideas and I, and I think the same thing it must must have been going on in the in the, you know in the, uh, in the development of events that you're talking about people got the idea about individual enterprise about the being on their own not being tied to the old ways and so, even though uh, it was uh, maybe hatched for uh, a, a privileged group, they they couldn't totally contain that. So I think it was always somewhat mixed. I think there was more what we would call free market activity in there, you know, between the uh, you know in the in the cracks and the shadows uh, where it couldn't be out in the open. And you know, you get these uh, fairs uh, that are going on in Europe and the. Uh, you know, in the, in the, the later Middle Ages uh, where there's trade going on and uh, and you get the law merchant, which is very important. And that's uh, that's sort of an international commercial law that's generated by uh, the merchants themselves because they're traveling across uh, you know, government lines and they, they, they needed a uniformity and they generated it on their own. Uh, a lot of that is not steeped in uh, government privilege, as, as far as I understand it. I mean, I've been reading about that stuff over the years, and uh, lots of good stuff comes out of that. I mean, this all percolates over eight hundred years or so, and and uh, emerges. And you're right; it gets a lot of it is corrupted, but that that doesn't mean it's all corrupt. So, uh, oh yeah, I, I mean, out. I wouldn't.
3: I would say that it was better a better paradigm than the system that existed before. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of positive benefits that came out of that even for the average person absolutely um but i'm just saying the fundamentally the paradigm is the structure of the paradigm is the same um and there was and you might it's sure it's better than the old uh, aristocratic uh way of of doing things that that was that was very stagnant um there was no no hope for anyone (laughs) in the lower classes then um So you might say that this system is better. All I'm saying is that that collusion between the state and big business has been there this whole time. It's just a Yeah,
2: I I agree (laughs) that it's been there this whole time. But I'm going a little further than saying it's better than what preceded it. I'm going a little Mm -hmm. bit further by saying they the people in charge couldn't control everything. You can't Uh do it, especially back then. Right. They didn't have the same kind of surveillance and they didn't have technology to spy on people. There were people doing things out of the view of the rulers and even out of the view of, uh, you know, the, the dominant uh, uh, holders of capital. So there's too much, you know, there's a lot of spontaneous order going on. That's what I want to say.
3: Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: So you can't let the, uh, uh, the fact that uh, you know, what you're describing overshadow the fact that people could still do things and they were struggling and, and pushing for more, ever more freedom in various places. Uh, there are books written about this. And, and, you know, this is happening in Europe, of course, mostly Western Europe. Uh, they're battling on the ground for just, a, you know, a couple of inches of, free, of freedom, basically, and sometimes winning. And, uh, and so this, this is what grows out of that. You know, uh, liberalism didn't, didn't uh, I mean, in the good sense, the classical liberalism doesn't begin with somebody reading, you know, Locke's treatise under the, the village tree to everybody. Uh, Locke writes about it after it's already going on. He observes what's right. going on. It's like a dictionary, right? A dictionary doesn't invent the language; it reflects the language. And so, people are doing things, and then the f- political philosophers come come along and start to, uh, you know, codify it in one way or another. Uh, people don't sit around and just wait. They they're doing what they can do to uh, to. Uh, and if they're not well connected, then they're they're doing it in more or less, uh, you know, free trade, free exchange uh, modes of action. So no, I just you want a, to give them the do. I don't want that those the, those people whose names we'll never know. I didn't want them to be overlooked.
3: Yeah. No. You make a great point. That's uh, a uh, that's a fair fair rebuttal. I, I and I agree with what you said. It, there was a positive cultural shift that came out of that uh, as well, which yeah. I think is what you're describing. Well, like you sort see of that a in the work change.
2: of Deirdre McCloskey, her work on the bourgeois the bourgeois uh, trilogy right? yep. uh, about how there's an ethic changes
0: bourgeois yep.
3: morality, yeah, yep.
2: yeah.
0: She's she's changed my view. She changed my views on a little bit just hearing her on podcasts for sure,
2: right? And, and uh, it, other people have suggested that. I mean, uh, Deirdre McCloskey has certainly developed it through three large volumes, but others, uh, uh, the historian uh, Brodell, Ferdinand Brodell, and others have you know gotten at some of this. You know, it's, it, yeah, it's and actually maybe orderly. They don't write the history. That's the thing. It doesn't get into the history books so much because they don't write the histories, mm-hmm. uh, but they're still doing things. This is a, an evolution, you know, hundreds of years of evolution and it's easy to miss, but it, but it is happening. And so the, the, the industrial revolution is, is a culmination, not just of, you know, uh, the ends getting together and, and going, you know, deciding what should come after feudalism, but, there's also alts who are
3: who are very busy yeah sure yeah sure uh, and that's all human history right uh you human history is most often um you know the 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 writing down uh, politicians writing down their their uh what uh, their activities right there's very yeah. few histories written about sort of the the common people and they, oh. I, you know nobody, nobody no uh, you know commoner was writing down, yeah, I traded you know a couple of sheep for some sacks of grain today. Nobody was writing that down that the, you know right. the they history. were
2: generating customs you know right. that became like a commercial law
3: uh-huh, yep, and oral traditions and yeah. that yeah, exactly right. That yep.
2: stuff is always important. We can't let the other thing overshadow that. that's definitely happening too. what you said you know definitely was important and was going on, but it wasn't the whole story.
3: Fair point. Mm. Yeah, Penguin, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You had, uh, you were saying to them.
2: No, uh, you
0: mentioned um well everything that you said, but also um uh, Mr. Richmond, uh, uh Dieter McCluskey might have been the first thing that set me on the path to sort of understanding the role of like um over time. I listened to a lot of podcasts mostly, so maybe if I. Pick up a book on it might elucidate that a little better, but just the role of the rise of the uh, the bourgeois class and, and, and liberalism and what, what that kind of meant in medieval or post medieval Europe and, and the trans the actual like cultural and then economic transformation that meant that they kind of wanted this, to go and set themselves apart as as innovators and and productive people set themselves apart from the uh, society kind of dominated by the the legacy powers, the aristocracy and clergy and stuff and, and put, put those kind of like, you know, traditions, superstitions, whatever kind of rules, I guess, you know, Cajun people in aside and kind of uh, start, start economic uh, production and and free exchange kind of without those paradigms. And uh, they created, you know, economic order that, that brought us from uh, the medieval period into early modernity and created the forebears of capitalism, including all the good parts that come from market um, market relations and, and free trade uh, that we still enjoy to, today. And it's, it's mm-hmm. hard to extract the good and the bad from those things. Yeah. But uh, it, I think one, one kind of take I've gotten from that that's repeatedly happens in, in a, in a market system, in, in a, uh, you know a bourgeois liberal or capitalist system uh is my a, a centrist critique that i've kind of come up with it's a little bit different than the one that, that second i've shared um for a while and that is that i think when you get you get a bourgeois class and knowing what the historical what knowing what the historical significance of the bourgeois class was you'll see people that are very economically or you know financially successful accumulate very large uh, typically very large sums and actually this still works actually down the scale too. But people that generally form that higher, more educated bourgeois class, maybe it's the second generation that's in, in in business or maybe it's just something that happens generation and generation down the line that they start to think that they can have an effect on society and, and on planning society higher than the market and higher than, you know, entrepreneurialism or or, or, or you know, in investment and, 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 um, and exchange uh, but that they want to have they want to transcend simply what they can do with their finances so they engage in in, in social planning and social engineering and, the, and these kind of grand schemes for society that really almost betray kind of what the significance of the bourgeois class that they and, and, and you know their their social significance they want to become enlightened um you could say illuminati you know enlightened people that 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 want to engineer society in a way that they cannot do just with market activity and, and even with their their wealth alone even if it's a large amount of wealth and i think that's kind of a trend that i see kind of occurring and and recurring that they at some point and it could be maybe a second and third generation of, of a fortune that was you know, gain through whatever market activity, uh, you, did they want to transcend marketism almost? And it's very common throughout the kind of what you would call the bourgeois class.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 that's a temptation. Uh, we need to have a check on that, then, mainly through people generally being suspicious if anyone says, you know, I could, I could run, I ought to be running everything. Cause I, I think I know how to do it. That, that person ought to be, you know, uh, everybody's eyebrows should go up when they hear those words spoken. It may be tempting to think, uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. I've made a lot of money. My business is pretty successful. I could run society. We need, we need at least a taboo where, you know, everyone else would say, no, you've gone, you know, you're going past your man needs to know his limits. As dirty Harry says in the movies, man needs to know his limitations. Uh, just because you can run a business doesn't mean you can going to run a society or an economy. So we need to, we need to, that's what we need to teach people so that they have almost like a knee jerk reaction to society wide planning or anybody that's got, you know, the big plan, uh, the, the blueprint, uh, you know, you want to change society, start a business and offer a product that people are going to want. Don't, don't try to do any more than that. Uh, that's what they, those people need to be told how you bring that about, you know, I don't know. We've been trying for at least my generation has been trying for a while. Younger generations are, are given their shot. Uh.
3: Hey, y'all listen. I wanted to tell you about key delicious jerky, uh, key delicious jerky is jerky made by uh, BJ friend of the show. I get uh jerky from her once a month. And <laughs> whenever we get it, it's almost immediately gone. Um, it's really good jerky. The flavors are just on point. Um, the texture is really good. You know, it's it's nice and soft, but not too soft. And it's not, you know, chewy like boot leather. Um, so she's got that dialed in perfect. Um, our kiddos really enjoy it. They will inhale an entire package of jerky in minutes. Uh, our kiddo particularly likes the uh, pizza flavored, which is which is really good. I enjoy it. I think my favorite is still the black pepper, but um, the pizza's pretty good. But she's got a lot of cool different flavors that you might not find everywhere else, um, like the pizza flavor I just mentioned. But she's got a, a, a dill pickle-flavored jerky, which is uh, a bit different, but I really enjoyed the, the flavor on that. It's re- It's really good if you like pickles. Um, so if, if you would like to check it out, uh, go to mailboxmeat.com. Uh, the shipping is free on orders, uh, $60 and up and just tell them that the Agora, the podcast sent you and, uh, we'll get a kickback from that. Um, it's th- this, I, I like supporting her cause she's, you know, number one, a friend of the show, but number two, the, the jer- jerky is really good. Like I, I enjoy some beef jerky now and then. And hers is is really good, um, especially when it comes to the texture. The texture is just on point, and um, the flavors are good. And um, also, I'm doing you know low sugar, low carb diet, so um, all of her jerky is uh, low sugar, and uh, she uses clean, uh, locally sourced meat for the jerky. Um, so, again, check, check out MailboxMeat.com. That's her site. And um, make sure you tell them that Agora the Podcast sent you. And um, I hope you enjoy because I, I really do. I would, I would do this even if she wasn't an advertiser because I really enjoy the jerky. So um, check it out. And, uh, again, it's MailboxMeat.com. Thanks. Peace.
2: I don't know how things are going to
3: turn out. At the moment, we're not looking great. uh, Sheldon, don't be too pessimistic, because it was your generation that laid the foundation for what Penguin and I's generation is doing now, which is just furthering these ideas. And I honestly, I think it's it's not a matter of if, but when. Um, It might be a few generations from now or a long time from now, but I think the the uh, the wheels are in motion, and and sort of uh, time and incentives are kind of on our side, but.
2: Well, thank you for that. Thank you for che- cheering me <laughs> up. <'cause they're, laughs> yeah, you've done, you've done
3: great work over the years, and I'm—it's appreciated, and, and I don't don't I don't think it's for nothing. So,
2: well, thank um, you. And we, of course, we got the baton from a previous generation, Rothbard's uh, sure. generation, who got it from you know an earlier. So we're keeping it alive, and uh, you, you you really can't predict social change, and uh, we just have to keep plugging away. And uh, yeah,
3: you, know. you never know what the future holds. You know.
2: Yes, that's right. People are for, well, free will.
3: Exactly. Well, we've kept you for an hour, and, and I I, I want to be respectful of your time. But could would you uh, come come back? And uh, I really, you are uh, an authority on on the topic of Israel, and I'd really love to have a conversation yeah. on that, and maybe talk about your book coming to Palestine a bit. Sure. And um, if you if you'd sure, like yeah. to come back, yeah, we'd nice. love to have you back on.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back.
3: All right, excellent. Um, do you, is there anything that you want to plug before, or uh, actually, Penguin, did you have something you just wanted to say?
0: No, um, I you are reminding me, I've heard some very interesting things, something in, I don't remember where, in podcast form, um, that you did, Sheldon, about uh, about uh, Israel and its history. Yeah, I actually oh, he, forgot, he's about the that. guy to talk to.
2: It's not sure. real recent, yeah. There, look, there are people that know a, a hell of a lot more history that I know, but I, yeah, I know a fair amount. I've been writing about it since the 80s and so that book that you mentioned coming to Palestine was a compilation of articles that that stretched back 30 years. So mm-hmm. that gives you some sense. but uh, I'd be happy to yeah happy, happy to talk about it.
3: Uh, All right excellent. Is there anything you'd like to plug? you got anything well, coming well, out?
2: We're an institute visit, visit every day. Mm-hmm. We got great writers, Jim Bovard and lots of people, uh, lots of different people on lots of different subjects, foreign policy, domestic policy. Uh, and uh, that, that's the thing i'd plug right now i don't have any new book coming out so i can't i, have, I can't plug that
3: any uh, recent articles that you you've done that you you'd, you think uh, our audience would enjoy
2: well you can find them at the libertarian institute the last sure. two things i wrote were related to israel so people can look those up uh, and then before that there was the one about the debating uh, you know do we want capitalism socialism or what so uh, puts in more f- formal uh format kinds of things we were discussing today with plenty of links in fact there's an there's a bunch of uh, articles recommended reading at the end of that with links if people wanted to see what roderick long has written about it and what some others have, have written about it if they want to pursue that subject
3: excellent well i'll definitely look for those and and again thanks for coming on and i we appreciate all your work and um you know, uh, it, it's uh, you've been your your work is much appreciated. We'll say that uh, at the very okay. least.
2: Thank you. It's nice to hear that. And uh, I, I, I do. Uh, I was very, I enjoyed the time here and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be happy to come back.
3: Yeah, this was great. And uh, uh, everybody listening, be excellent to each other. And uh, everybody, have a good weekend. Take
0: care. Take care. Ciao. Bye.
2: Bye.